Aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner. This is the 27th of December, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's in the year 2009. And uh, many are listening live by the web or by telephone and will participate later in the program live. Uh, with text messages or telephone calls. We can unmute folks one at a time now. That's pretty cool. Although uh, the vast majority of people are still listening to the podcast and the direct um, audio feed from the Ageless Wisdom website. So whatever is your pleasure, we want to have all of this available. I think live is a lot of fun. If you can make it work into your schedule, the more the merrier. I look forward to using the telephone more and um, taking, you know, calls, as it were, getting feedback, both from the telephone and the text. On the other hand, if uh, that's difficult for you due to scheduling or for whatever reason, you've always got the streaming audio in the archives. You notice a button on the left that says Audio Archives and the podcast, which you can subscribe to easily for free with a single click at the iTunes store or at any of the major podcast directories like um, podfeed.net or Podcast Alley or Podcast Pickle. They're all over the uh, the Internet. And uh, you can usually subscribe to the podcast and listen streaming there, too. So also remember to use the send one to a friend gadget. That helps promote the site. You share with other people. We have uh, no intention of uh, copywriting or uh, seeking any kind of royalty or payment for any of this. And so feel free to share it with your friends. And we've got the tools in the archives for you to do that. It's uh, you just click on audio archive or. Uh, on the screen in front of you, or if you're listening delayed to a podcast, uh, go at your convenience to my website, theagelesswisdom.com. Uh, go inside by hitting home page, and you'll see a, a tab that says web teleconferences. They're all in there, along with the gadget to send to your friend. Okay. Before we begin today's class, I want to take just a minute and tell you about a new social net service that we've begun to set up. It's brand new. We only have 21 members at this point. It's like Facebook or MySpace for people who are interested in personal and spiritual development. So if you've been following my radio program or if you've been in one of my classes over the years, uh, maybe you're a, a private client or a student, uh, and and want to follow along, um, and and I guess connecting with other people is really what a social net is all about. It's it's obviously as I've already said about our mutual desire to grow this site and to make these programs available to people because personal and spiritual development is really what everybody needs. We don't need more religion. And we don't need more political dogma. We need more freedom to think for ourselves and to honor diversity in philosophy and 
psychology and education and all of the various areas of of human enlightenment and, and advancement of the species. That's what we're about, comparative religion, if you will, comparative philosophy. Uh, we talk about it all, and we're not looking for the run, uh, the one right way. I almost said we're not looking for the runway. We're, <laughs> we're, we're not looking for the one right way to be. That would turn us into a religion, and I have, no, believe me, no desire to start a religion. So this is the ageless wisdom, the ancient teachings from all cultures and all societies. And if you want to hook up with other women and men uh, who feel the same way, well, you can go to my Facebook page, search for me in Facebook, or simply go to this new site we've set up that is like Facebook, but just for listeners of this program and, and those who want to support what we're doing okay and connect with each other it's got a discussion group it's got live chat it's got uh, rss feed so you can track this program the sunday class it's got a music player where you can post songs if you'd like it's pretty cool and all you have to remember is my website theagelesswisdom.com changes ever so slightly by adding ning and the period in front of com. So you go to my website at any time by typing the w's.theagelesswisdom.com. You go to the Ageless Wisdom social net when you type the w's.theagelesswisdom.ning.com. That's Nancy Ida Nancy Golf Ning with an N. Ning like Nancy. Theagelesswisdom.ning.com. All right. And again, a lot like Facebook, but for listeners of this program. And you can start up your own discussions. Uh, you can participate in chat, like the chat room we now have associated with this program. But when this is not on the air, when we're not live, the chat's not available here, but will always be available at this new site we're talking about, theagelesswisdom.ning.com. Okay? And, of course, we have a blog, too, theagelesswisdom.blogspot.com. Um, we are a little behind. That's basically just for posting the newsletter every week. And um, I've fallen behind in that. We'll catch up with that pretty soon. My apologies for that. But... With the exception of the last couple of months, all the past newsletters are up there, and it's a fun uh, system to browse and see what we were doing six months ago or a year ago. And All the links still work. You can still listen to any of the old programs with um, the archive of the newsletter, right? The links still work. So I wanted to tell you about the new social net. Uh, as of this morning, as I say, we just put it up. We have 21 members. A lot of folks haven't even put their pictures up yet. But go ahead and join us and uh, participate, play around with the chat, the discussion group. Post some videos. Uh, my friend Peter Bedard put a really cool video up the other day. you got to see about a very interesting approach to shiatsu and acupuncture. 
uh, about diet and nutrition and how they all fit together. Thank you, Peter, for that. Post videos, post um, your own photos. Uh, again, you could post something off YouTube if you think it's relevant. All right, remember who's in this group and uh, play around with that. Have some fun with that. Well, from Maui, I want to wish you a uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and do our uh, Christmas Hanukkah solstice uh, program this year by talking about the birth of light. Well, that's our title for the webinar today, The Birth of Light. Last year, about this time, I did a program called The Esoteric Meaning of Christmas. But in preparing for uh, the class this year around Christmas and solstice, it occurred to me in meditation to call this class The Birth of Light and to talk about what the Judeo-Christian um, lineage of religion, the Hebrew religion, so-called Christian religion, have to do with the ageless wisdom as paganism or pantheism. Now, I want to um, tell you what pantheism means because I want to introduce a word even if you know pantheism, you probably don't know this other word I want to uh, tell you about that has been in use for a while, but I'd like to see it promoted in esoteric circles, and that's panentheism. Now, pantheism is a simple word to understand. If you know pan as the mythological creature in the Greek and Roman uh, pan, um, what do they call it? Um, pantheon. There's that word again. The pantheon of gods. Uh, pan is that half man, half goat fellow with the flute. And he represents life itself. So pantheism, theism is a worship of that which is divine and sacred in life. Pantheism is a way philosophers refer generally to paganism, to the religion of shamans and indigenous people before the coming of the prophets. I'll say it that way. Before Buddha, um, Confucius, Lao Tzu, um, Christ, Mohammed, um, Moses goes back as far as any of them, uh, farther than most, actually, to about 1300 B.C. But uh, pantheism predates even that. Pantheism is the Prisca Theologia. It's the oldest of the, of the sacred traditions, again, from before there really were uh, teachers or prophets. I guess you could argue that prophets have always been involved in religion, um, even as far back as uh, before any of these. I mentioned Buddhism, that's 500 B.C., roughly. Um, so the Hermetic philosophies of the Egyptians would be the oldest. But even they have a prophet. That's why 
Egyptian philosophy is called Hermetic because their prophet is Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. And uh, he pops up as Hermes in the Greek pantheon and as uh, Mercury in the Roman pantheon. But many believe that he was a real guy or maybe a lineage. Manley Hall suggests that Hermes may have been a lineage of teachers that stretch from ancient Egypt about three or 4,000 years ago all the way back to the flood myth and before the flood, which would be basically Atlantis. Hermes is sometimes called Toth or Thoth, if you can get your THs right, and uh, also referred to in some literature as the Atlantean. So we're going way back here. And the birth of light, the allegory I want to talk about today, is one that, interestingly, I think fascinatingly, is found in both the ancient Jewish tradition, again, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, we believe, in the 14th century B.C., would that be right, the 1300s B.C., and uh, then, of course, the... Christian church was rather slow to form. It, it, it wasn't founded in, the, I guess, the earliest organization of the church papers and documents and such in Rome was in the 2nd and 3rd century, and then 4th and 5th century. It wasn't really until the 6th century A.D. that the church began to really get it together with their Council of Nicaea. And somewhere in the antiquity of the Catholic Church is a decision, apparently, to align Christmas with winter solstice, as the Jews had done with Hanukkah. And that's the premise today, that winter solstice, which is a pagan or pantheism tradition, and predates religion, was nevertheless, how shall I say, co-opted by both Hebrew teachers and early Christian teachers who aligned Hanukkah and the birth of Christ, Christmas Day, so-called, with winter solstice, the old pagan or pantheon, um, not pantheon, pantheism, the old pagan or pantheism uh, philosophy. By the way, panentheism, the new word relatively that I wanted to introduce, um, is pantheism along with an idea of that which is sacred or divine being also uh, transcendent. Let me describe it simply this way. The ancient pagans saw that which was divine, that which is sacred, God, if you will, in all things, in all living things, and many would say in all things, including non-organic or non-living rocks and dirt and water and, and gases and clouds and sky, and that there is nowhere in the universe that is devoid or absent the presence of God. This is called God imminent. 
okay? God within, the one in everything is God imminent. Pagans believe that. It's core pantheism. The Christian church, when it came along, did not like that at all. It made God way too common, way too accessible, and not nearly kingly enough. So the emphasis in the early Christian churches, and to some extent even in the Hebrew and uh, Hermetic or Egyptian religions before that, is to exalt God by saying God is transcendent. That is, in some ways, just the opposite of God imminent, where God is in every seemingly separated thing. Well, God transcendent is the idea that every seemingly separated thing is within God. All right? That would be the opposite of pantheism. But the word I want you to know to show how smart you are is panentheism. P-A-N for the God Pan, and then E-N, panen, and then theism, right? The study of religious tradition. So pantheism is simply believing God is in everything in nature, found everywhere, everywhere equally present. Panentheism accepts pantheism, but then adds the complementary concept that all these seemingly separated things are also within the one, that the physical universe is, in a sense, the body of God, all right? That God has a will, God has a loving nature, a heart, and God has a body. God has a mind, uh, a heart, and a body. And uh, you see this in Catholicism. We've talked about how the sign of the cross made by Catholics corresponds to the mental, emotional, and physical bodies of the human being. So God the Father that you see is the big daddy God on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, right? Um, The God of the Old Commandment, that's basically a a correlation, a reference to God's will, the mental nature of the one life, the totality of the ability of all things to think. And then the Son of God would be the soul, Um, Christ is said by Christians to be the only Son of God, but of course many traditions believe that we all have a soul and that we're all in that way sons of God. Actually, Christ said that himself, that we're all children of the Most High. So this would correspond to the heart of God or the love of God. Both of these together, the mind of God, God's will, or the Son, the heart of God, the embodiment of perfect love, correlate to our topic today, the birth of light. Sometimes light refers just to the mind of God, and you'll hear people talk about the love and the light, where the love is the feeling of that which is sacred, and the harmony and the unity, and the light is the vision, the ability to see the bigger picture. But the birth of light it has been correlated, no question about it, by ancient rabbis and early Catholic fathers with the winter solstice. And I want to explain that a little bit because the metaphor is rich. The birth of light 
is what solstice is about. The birth of light is what Hanukkah is about. And the birth of light is really what Christmas is about to the esotericist. Again, you know, we're, we are contemplative, we are mystical in our orientation, uh, we are comprehensive and inclusive, so we're not looking for the one right way. That would exclude somebody who disagrees, and we don't want to do that. We're talking about core mysticism here. Pantheism, penentheism, the definition of God as both imminent and transcendent. This is core mysticism, found really standing above or behind all religion, but quite esoteric and veiled. It's Mysticism is the poetry, the allegory, the symbolism, and the metaphor that uh, is often found in tradition, uh, traditional religions, that is. And, of course, the fundamentalist in each religion would be the individual or the group that takes the religious writings literally, without any flexibility, without any symbolism or metaphor, like the in Christianity, it'd be the, the born-again Protestants, uh, the evangelicals, so-called, who say everything in the New Testament has to be taken literally, that there is no allegory. Which is odd, because if you read Matthew in the 13th chapter, Christ is talking about teaching an allegory <laughs> and metaphor and parable, saying that's the only way anybody's going to understand so, um, and besides, if we take everything literally in Christianity, then born again is an acknowledgement of reincarnation. So, um, the fundamentalists have their issues. We have our problems with fundamental Christians. Um, in the Middle East, a lot of the tensions being created by fundamentalist Jews who, uh, you know, are seizing territory that doesn't belong to them, but claiming God gave it to them thousands of years ago, so they're going to just take it. Fundamentalists again. And then, uh, of course, in Islam, who are the the terrorists in, in the Muslim religion, but the fundamentalists who want everything literally, and, and of course, who subjugate women to uh, a horrible degree. Um, it's interesting to debate a devout Muslim, and especially a, somebody in the West, as they attempt to explain that what they're really doing with the burqa uh, and the, the whole treatment of women is to honor them as special. Um, but, of course, it's, it's not true. And the degradation of women in all these religions, you know, an Orthodox Jew gets up in the morning, faces the East, and thanks God that he's not a woman. And we can see women in the born-again and evangelical Christian community uh, treated in the same way, um, expected to obey. And the more fundamental the religion is, the more likely women are to be um, subjugated and, uh, and oppressed by that religion. On the other hand, the mystical traditions being very inclusive, are very flexible and honor all life, 
not only women, but animals and plants, and see the divine expressing in every animal. In other words, to the mystic, it's not that the animal has been created by God as a separate being, but that God has a cat nature that expresses through all cats, from your little house cat to the lions and the panthers and the leopards. God has a dog nature. God has a rhinoceros nature. God has a uh, even a snake nature that or a worm nature that expresses. And the mystic would argue also that God needs to express as the rose and the daffodil and, and you know the hydrangea <laughs> and all the various trees and. It's a, it's a very different perspective from the religious points of view that, that see the creation as full of separated forms, so they see God as a separated being living, <clears throat> excuse me, living also in a world somehow of separated form. Whereas for the mystical traditions that stand above these religions, and in particular today talking about paganism or pantheism, and also uh, Hanukkah and Christmas, the, the mystical traditions that stand above or behind these traditions don't see God as separate, but having created a, a universe of separated forms is the never, nevertheless both imminent and transcendent, the divine within all of these separated or seemingly separated forms, God imminent, and then God transcendent, all those forms in God. God in everything, everything in God. The way I like to say it is the one in everything and everything in the one. But if you don't have a little bit of background in these definitions, it's, Sounds like LSD rambling, right? Everything is everything. What are you going to do with that? Uh, you can be, <laughs> now you can hopefully begin to make some sense out of that. So there's your definitions. Pantheism or paganism, God is in everything, in nature. But then panentheism, that God is in everything. The pantheism part is right. But panentheism says, oh, and then there's this other half that everything is in the one, you see. And now God is not this separated being living very far away, but in everything, in every cell of your body, in everybody's body, and in every living thing, every creature, in the planet itself, right? Nothing too big, nothing too small, the quantum the subatomic particle, the ultimate grittiness of the universe, as Stephen Hawking describes it, the ultimate grittiness of the, of the universe is still not too small to exclude divinity. Right. So this is the ocean of the one life that you will often hear mystics in all cultures, in all societies, refer to. Now, our topic today, the birth of light. The birth of light is a reference to 
divinity, that which is sacred, particularly as awareness of self, as consciousness. The word consciousness and the word awareness are, for the most part, interchangeable. I think there are some traditions where consciousness would be capitalized as a reference ultimately to the one life, and awareness would be lowercase. That is like your particular individuated point of view within that universal consciousness. So, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, I think, especially in the West, we have to sort of be flexible and have at least two words that mean the same thing. So I'm not willing to say that consciousness is always a reference to the totality and awareness, the individuality, but I do want you to know that often it's used that way. To be consciously aware or aware that you are conscious sort of a riddle. It's like defining a word without using that same word in the definition. Uh, I'm amazed at, at the skill it takes to write a dictionary. <laughs> to be able to, to define a word is often very difficult, quite difficult. So we exist not only as the individual separated being, the body so-called, but there is a light that is born within that body. Our topic today, the birth of light. And that light is referred to in all religious traditions. But it's always a symbol. It's always arcane. It's always esoteric or uh, poetic. It's a metaphor or an allegory as in in light and mint, or, you know, I was once in darkness and now I can see, right? The coming of the dawn. Oh, I get it. I see. Well, why didn't you see before? Well, I don't know. I guess there wasn't enough light (laughs) for me to see. But we're talking again in a metaphorical or allegorical sense about seeing inside your head, as in, oh, I understand, I get it. Oh, is that what you mean? Oh, I see. So the birth of light, celebrated by solstice, by Hanukkah, and by Christmas, I argue, is the birth of awareness. Now, we're all aware. So when I talk about the birth of awareness, I'm talking about aware of being aware. Conscious that you exist. This is, um, you know, Rene Descartes' I think, therefore I am. You could make an argument for I feel, therefore I am. And a very well-practiced contemplative or mystic could say, I am conscious, therefore I am. Because you can be conscious without thoughts or feelings. That's what contemplation is. 
is to be consciously awake, aware, and alert, but free from being driven by a stream of thoughts or a train of thoughts, right? When we turn away from purposeful thinking or applied thinking, the mind usually goes on. It just runs on with thought and feeling streams. To be truly conscious or aware, the birth of light is a degree of mindfulness. It says, I'm not those thoughts. Those thoughts are part of me, but I'm not just what I think. I'm not just my feelings. My feelings are an important part of who I am. My emotional feelings reveal a lot about me, but I'm not limited to my emotional or mental nature any more than I am limited to my body or my clothing or the car I drive or the house I live in, although I'll bet you know people just like me who believe they are their property and they are their car. I've had people tell me appearance is everything. And I say, no, it's not. It's very important in business. It could be important in your social circles, depending on the nature of that social circle. But no, appearance is not everything. You see, there is substance. In philosophy, appearance is understood to be merely the surface reflection of things and that there is something substantial. You know, beauty is only skin deep. The, the substance goes even deeper. There's a, there's a beauty that goes deeper than what you can see with your physical eyes. And this is a very rich allegory for the concept we're talking about today as we, you know, stand just on the other side of all three of these holidays, these holy days. Solstice was the 21st of this month. Hanukkah varies. Christmas is always the 25th. I'm going to tell you in a minute why all of these are about the birth of light. But you need to understand spiritually Metaphysically, when we talk about light, we're talking about consciousness or awareness, that which remains when you stop thinking. That little gap of silence between your thoughts. That space that you could learn to get into where you are disconnected, not dissociated, but nevertheless disconnected from your emotional feelings as well as your thoughts and can watch your thoughts and feelings stream by but you're not driven by them and then as a meditator a a contemplator with enough practice you can even transcend the mantrams uh, the chanting the visualization the breath watching and all the other wonderful meditations and go for the ultimate in clearing or emptying the mind, technically called contemplation. I always feel sorry for beginning meditators whose teachers tell them only about contemplation. It's so frustrating. Uh, I think it's a real good idea to begin with breathing and 
progressive muscular relaxation and visualization as we do in the exercises that are part of every one of these classes uh, the guided imagery, the chanting, the mantra uh, holding an image in your mind's eye as in a mandala or a yantra um, I mentioned watching the breathing all of these are very powerful techniques but yeah there is a kind of meditation called contemplation where you are aware of yourself as uh, consciousness or awareness independent of the thoughts and feelings that are being attracted by consciousness. In mysticism, a thought is not understood to be generated, nor is a feeling generated from you much less put upon you by circumstance. It is magnetically attracted to you by nature of the frequency of consciousness that you are able to carry throughout the day. The more peaceful and kind and loving you are, the more light you have, the more conscious you are, and the easier it becomes for you to recognize an existence beyond thought, feeling, and behavior. You make better choices, for one thing. Instead of being driven by your thoughts, you realize these thoughts are submitted for your approval, like Rod Steiger in the Twilight Zone, you know, submitted for... You know, Remember your parents probably said to you as a little kid, oh, great, and so if Billy said jump off a bridge, would you do it? Well, most kids would think about it, at least in my neighborhood. Yeah, Billy did it. I'd <laughs> Why? Because we're young, because we're naive, and because our parents have raised us to do what we're told to do. You know, it's radical to say think for yourself and question authority, but it turns out, our parents want us to do what we're told to do when they're telling us what to do, and then when they're not around, we have to think for ourselves, which really means think the way they've taught us to think. <laughs> but you see, we're talking about spiritually-based exercises that allow you to be aware of yourself as existing over and above those thoughts and those feelings much less your physical behavior. There's your lower correspondence, the mental, the emotional, and the physical, the lower three, so-called. Light corresponds to consciousness. Consciousness is found in all three. You are mentally conscious, you are emotionally conscious, you are physically conscious. Consciousness is like the element of air where the mental nature corresponds to fire, but it has air in it. And the emotional nature corresponds to water, but it has air in it. And the physical nature corresponds to earth, but it has air in it. And so these four ancient elements correspond to the lower three, the fire of the mind, the water of the heart, the earth of the physical body, but the fourth element, air, is consciousness. 
or the awareness of all that is everywhere equally present and pervades all your thoughts, your feelings, and your physical body. If you're still a little unclear, consider what it means to be unconscious of your thoughts or to be unconscious of how you feel or to be unconscious of your behavior. That may be the easiest one of all. Like a habit that you just unconsciously bite your fingernails, for example, you know, or you unconsciously light a cigarette. My God, back in the day when I was a kid smoking cigarettes, I thought I was managing stress. They made me so nervous there were times I had two cigarettes going at the same time, right? Unconscious behavior. Imagine living your whole life unaware of your ability to choose better thoughts, to be more critical in your thinking, to be more sensitive to your emotional nature so as to understand yourself better, more conscious in all of these areas, more conscious of what you eat and the way you eat and the need for exercise and so on. This is the birth of light, and this is the season to celebrate the coming of this awareness, the the birth of what in Buddhism is called the Buddha nature, and what in mystical Christianity is called the Christos. And Jews use the same word, Christos. It's actually Greek for Messiah. This is the Messiah, the Savior. And, of course, the great rift between Jews and Catholics and later uh, other Christians, Protestants, Protestants, who broke away from the Catholic Church during the Reformation, is, was Jesus the Messiah? The Jews are still waiting for their Messiah. Christians say, no, he came and you missed it, right? So, here you go. The birth of light as consciousness is celebrated first by the pagans, by the pantheists. And it's celebrated as summer solstice. This is what... uh, Stonehenge represents, um, as I understand the latest research, actually, what remains of Stonehenge is half of what used to exist. And the part made out of stone that still exists was for celebrating death and the end of the year. And then they had another area made of wood that they used to celebrate the other side of the cycle. But the winter solstice, you know, from your elementary school and junior high school, middle school, science class, right? It's the shortest day of the year. And there is also a summer solstice on roughly June 21st every year that is the longest day of the year. Now, that this coming of, you know, summer, or this point in the middle of winter where the day is the shortest, and now 
every day after that gets a little longer and a little bit warmer. It's sort of funny. The first day of winter is the same day where they start getting longer and warmer. <laughs> but it takes a while to heat up. So it's really solstice, the beginning of winter, when the days start getting longer. This is celebrated by the evergreen tree. And if you ever wondered what in the world does an evergreen tree have to do with Christmas, or what does an Easter bunny and a bunch of eggs, rabbits don't lay eggs, what does that have to do with Easter, with the crucifixion on Good Friday and the resurrection three days later of the Christ, all you have to do is study a little bit of pantheism, some paganism. And you see that the church deliberately aligned the birth of Christ with winter solstice and the evergreen tree and the resurrection or ascension of Christ as spirit with this spring fertility festival of rabbits and eggs. If you don't see fertility in that, right, the time for the planting of the crop. And yet here we go around, um, you know, as practicing Christians, um, never even questioning why I'm dragging this tree into the house or why we're hiding Easter eggs and coloring eggs um, if paganism and pantheism is such a bad thing. There, there are, you know, Protestant sects that refuse to celebrate Christmas in this way. I believe Jehovah Witnesses do not allow or permit Christmas trees. I think um, the Church of God in uh, Pasadena, the late Herbert Armstrong's Church of God, uh, they would have nothing to do with um, uh, Christmas trees. Didn't want <laughs> they saw them as pagan symbols, and likewise for Easter. But all the church was doing was co-opting pantheism or paganism, you know, saying how best uh, to convert them but to join them. If you can't beat them, join them, and, and we'll all celebrate together. And little by little, we will organize these pagans, these pantheists, into an understanding that the coming of light, the birth of light, is more than the days getting longer. It's more than the excitement of waiting for the warmth of the summer sun. It is the birth of consciousness. It is the birth of your awareness of yourself as awareness itself. And that is a quality of spiritual freedom that is difficult to discuss even today, with so-called religious people. Because the church became so dogmatic and crystallized that these arcane and uh, esoteric meanings have been lost. I think deep in the bowels of the Vatican, you can find documents and teachers, if you will, who understand the esoteric roots of all of this. And I know in universities all over the world it's understood, but rarely taught. Most students aren't interested. Not, not much of a career you can make out of being an esoteric philosopher, right? 
or a philosopher of any kind, <laughs> for that matter. Although that's what a Ph.D. is, right? A philosophy in whatever. But I'm talking more about, you know, the search for truth in all fields. So let me tell you how this came about in the Hebrew religion as well, which I think is even more veiled than the fact that the early Catholics had co-opted winter solstice and aligned the birth of the light, the birth of the Christ, with winter solstice. The Hebrew holiday Hanukkah that always comes just before Christmas, those dates vary nevertheless. I'm not sure how this was decided upon in the Hebrew global community because they don't have like a Jewish Vatican or a Jewish Pope who can issue some papal bull or decree, and that's the way it is. But somehow, scholarly rabbis have created a consensus down through the millennium that this, what is for them rather a, a small holiday or holy day, uh, Hanukkah is not one of the big holidays in the Jewish calendar, and until it got aligned with Christmas, it never had anything to do with gifts. There was no gift-giving. You probably know the story of these Jews that only had enough oil to keep the lamp burning for two, maybe three days, and in fact it continued to burn day after day after day, seven days, uh, eight days. And this is celebrated with the menorah and the candles and the lighting of a different candle each night throughout Hanukkah during that week, but how do they determine when Hanukkah is celebrated? Well, keep in mind, as I tell you this, that Hanukkah is also known as the Festival of Lights. And you're lighting candles to celebrate the oil lasting many days longer in the, in the lamp they used to see and read and do business, right? That oil continued to burn much longer than it should have. The light, there, there you have the light, so-called festival of lights in Hanukkah. But how many people know that the date each year is set according to the new moon and the winter solstice? I have a lot of Jewish friends, several of whom I've asked, and they have no idea. They've never heard this at all, but... Ten minutes on Google, you can verify it. Hanukkah is set to be centered around the new moon, the last new moon, before winter solstice. So it's the darkest night. The new moon is when there is no moon, right? The opposite of a full moon. So the new moon is the darkest night before winter solstice, the longest night. Hanukkah is celebrated on the darkest night before the longest night, the new moon just before winter solstice, or the shortest day, if you will. 
a festival of lights, a coming of light, a celebration of the birth of light. And that's who you are. And that may be the most important thing a Jew needs to know. It may be the most important thing a Christian needs to know. That the birth of Christ in a manger, and this story is only in the Bible in two of the four books, all right, and they don't agree very well at all. And animals were really not kept in wooden buildings back in those days. It likely was in a cave, that Christ was born in a small cave or a cavern where animals were kept. Wood was a precious commodity. You didn't build barns or stalls for animals in in that part of the world 2,000 years ago. Animals were kept in usually in a little cave. So it's interesting. Christ was not only born in a cave, in a manger in a cave, uh, but also upon being taken off the cross was buried in a cave and raised from the dead out of a cave. And this also has esoteric meaning with regard to a place in your head where you can meditate, an intersection, a location inside the head known as the cave. I'm not going to talk about that in any great detail today. It's a very veiled and esoteric meditation. It's found in many traditions. Um, Blavatsky writes about it, and she published um, uh, the, the Voice of Silence. Not a very well-known book by Blavatsky, but if you buy H.P. Blavatsky's The Voice of Silence, unlike most of her stuff, a rather thin little book, you can read about meditating in the cave. And, of course, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, going to the Himalayas to meditate in a cave, again, an allegory for a place inside your head. And that's the intersection of, of the cross, in a sense. It's where light is born in the head. It has a lower correspondence in the heart chakra, but in many ways it's a correspondence of the upper three chakras, the crown, the ajna, and the throat. So this is another allegory that shows just some of the depth of symbolism and poetry when we talk about the birth of light in the festival of lights, Hanukkah, in the birth of the Christ, the Christos, and aligning it with the pagan tradition of winter solstice being the day on which the nights get shorter, the days get longer, here comes the sun, right? Thank you, George Harrison. Here comes the sun, here comes the light, here comes the awareness of you, not merely as a mortal being, a son of man, but also a son of God, that there is a Christos or Buddha nature inside you, and that solstice, in addition to being a celebration that spring and summer is on its way and the days are getting longer and warmer now, right, is also a wonderful time to rededicate your life to an awareness of self as a being of love and light, to awaken that Christos within you, that Buddha nature within you, that 
divine nature in you that allows you to see beyond your behavior, your feelings, and your thoughts, learning to be as conscious and aware as you can possibly be. Well, there's lots more, but uh, here we are already at the top of the hour, so with that, I'm going to go to the questions, and uh, I'm anxious to listen to this program back myself, because this is not an easy topic to talk about, but I have a lot of respect for the people that attend this class, either live or podcast or replay, and uh, I'll know more when I get feedback from you to what degree this really does make sense to you. Let's start with the uh, text feedback. While I remind those of you who are on the telephone, if you have a comment or a question, I can unmute you individually, but I need you to press star 2 on your telephone touchpad to be acknowledged. If you have a question or a uh, comment you want to make by telephone, Press star 2. And if you're listening on the phone and the web, you've probably noticed the web is delayed. So listen to the telephone carefully if you press star 2. And then if you want to comment by text, just use the button on the left of the web screen that says ask a question and fill out the form. And we'll go there first of all see who's on board, who's with us this week. In Los Angeles, Robert Wacker is with us, says, hello, Michael, hello, Robert. He says, the idea of the birth of light arose in the minds of ancient astrologers thousands of years before Moses. That's an interesting point. Light is the star. It's a good point. He says, ultimately, we're talking about the waxing and waning of the energy of life itself, and the myriad of manifestations brought about by that cycle of expression, you're right, it is deep stuff. The waxing and the waning of the light would be the yin and the yang. That's the polarity of the light. We would see that in the moon, in the, in the cycling of the moon or the seasons. You know, Ecclesiastes, everything has its season. And so there has to be a death of light in order for there to be a birth of light. Uh, that's sort of what Robert's reminding us of. Remember that quotation that I put in the uh, the newsletter this week? Let me bring that up real quickly. I thought that was really nice. Let's see if I can find that real fast for us. This is a woman named May Sarton who said, without darkness, nothing comes to birth. As, without light, nothing flowers. And I thought about that, and I thought, wow, that's really spot on. You know, grass and flowers, uh, the landscaping around your house during the day is soaking up the light, but at night it's growing, right? Most growth happens at night. The same thing with you. Your hair grows, your body grows. If you're young and your body is growing, most of that happens at night. So you see this. Uh, ebb and flow, this yin and yang uh, that Robert is talking about in the lunar cycle and the solar cycle and everything having its seasons. Still, there would have to be a source, a capital S, source of light, 
above it all that is unmovable, that knows no time or space, that does not cycle, that we are victims of that cycle and have to account for all cycles is part of being the bottom end of the pendulum, the yin and the yang, the polarities. But the top end of the pendulum, of course, is fixed and unmoving. So the ultimate source of light would stand above this waxing and waning that Robert reminds us of. Good stuff, though, Robert. Thank you. Brian Hernandez is with us from the high desert. Brian's out in Lancaster, north of L.A., wishing us all a happy new year, peace, love, and and blessings, Brian. Thank you. Donna in Albuquerque says, I'm ignorant of absolute truth, but am humble before my ignorance, and therefore, or, or she says, and therein lies my honor and my reward. That's Gil Gibran. Michael, you're very special. Thanks so much for what you do in uh, these, uh, what's his last word, for your weekly verses, I think she says. That's a beautiful, beautiful line that she's quoting from Kihil Gibran. Um, the idea that I'm ignorant of absolute truth. Uh, there you have that same pendulum again. The bottom of the pendulum is the relative truth that Robert's talking about. Everything has a yin and a yang, an ebb and a flow, a season, a cycle, right? But the top of the pendulum, as I said a minute ago, is fixed. That would correspond to the absolute truth. So there's relative truth. You can say to somebody, you know, that may be your truth. My truth is different. And, okay, so you're both relatively right. Absolute truth has to be capitalized, really, technically. Capital A, capital T, absolute truth could only be the domain of the most high, the most sacred, the ultimate source. Right? So in philosophy, where the word God is usually avoided, the word absolute is usually, or often, I'll say often, if not usually, used as a synonym for God. What a religious person calls God, a philosopher would call the absolute and portray as fixed and unmoving and unmovable. Let's go to Pittsburgh. John in Pittsburgh says, Thank you, Michael. Thanks for all you do and who you are and what you care about. And John, thank you as well. Let's check the uh, telephone, see if anybody has their hand raised. Yeah, I think Robert. I'm going to try and unmute Robert here. Robert, you're on with Michael on the Mystery School. Hi. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hello, Robert. I'm better and better, thanks. Nice Outstanding. Yeah, uh, hello, you. all, and this is uh, really uh, a great presentation. Uh, good point about the uh, the source of energy that brings about the uh, pulsation that we witness. It brings about an interesting question is, were, would we be... In that state of the absolute, there is no manifest. There is That's no right. manifestation. Right. So we're we're. It is interesting that we are here at all. The the absolute being fixed, if you will, 
in a way, cannot even know of itself as being. That's the argument for that we often find in philosophy among many philosophers that God had to create, <laughs> had yeah. to create the creation, had no choice, but to create the creation as a manifestation or a way of experiencing itself. Itself. Yeah. But this is Meister Eckhart uh, hit it right on the head when he said, there is no being without a mode of being. And there is a, an entire group uh, that uh, Gurdjieff, you know, we talk about being aware, that we're aware. Right. That arose as a capacity, but it's very important to remember that that is not our constant state. No way. And that the fundamental work if you will, of a mystic is to cultivate the state of being aware that we are aware because it's profoundly different than the average condition that we walk around in. We make the mistake, all of us, from time to time of thinking that by virtue of being wakeful and being awake, we are as conscious as we can be. Not even close. When we're aware that we're aware, that is a very different moment than any other moment. And uh, I just thought that should be mentioned. I'm sure you would have got to it if we'd had more time, but, boy, that hour sure went fast. It surely does. Can I ask you real quickly, I want to save some time to do a, an exercise here. Your interest in mysticism and metaphysics, when did that begin for you, and and, and how did you get interested in that, uh, in boy, the whole field? It's uh, that's an interesting story. I, 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 I'm wondering if I should uh, do the Guy Finley and and uh, and, and refrain. Uh, I, I guess you would say it was a, it was what Joseph Chilton Pierce would call a contact with non ordinary reality. When I was 11 years old, I experienced something very remarkable, where apparent laws were suspended for a moment, laws of physics, laws of thermodynamics. And uh, it really, really put the hook in me, as they say. And in uh, 1974, when I was about 15, I stumbled upon the works of Gurdjieff and uh, other mystics, and uh, that was uh, that was the beginning of the road. You were off and running. So you had a spontaneous epiphany of some sort that you just couldn't deny? I I managed to pick up a uh, <clears throat> a large soldering iron that was in use at the time. I was sitting in this little cradle that had been on for about half an hour. It's very hot. There's a you know a soldering iron has a, a tip, and then there's a, it was a large cylindrical machine steel barrel behind that yeah. you know, the housing, and I managed to pick that soldering up, but I didn't use the handle. <laughs> and the 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 thing that was you know I was a little kid I was 11 years old and I, this is the first time I'd seen this thing and I looked at it and I thought wow that looks really cool cool that looks really cool cool and I picked it up and what I felt was something akin to what Chilton Pierce described in his cigarette burning exercise when he was in college was an intense sensation, but not pain. Was that in his Cracking the Cosmic Egg book? Uh, I believe it is either that one or the sequel, Exploring the Crack. Yeah. 
And, he has uh, a lot of good books. I met him. I interviewed him on the radio years ago. He's a hell of a guy. And uh, I don't know that he's with us any longer, but, you know, his break, in many ways, as I recall it, Robert, was having to deal with his wife's cancer and the way the medical establishment was treating his wife and her cancer. Yes. He uh, he, he elected to... He tried to redefine the paradigm as what he did. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he was very nearly successful, but as I believe he said in one of the the the, the world is is just so much. You know, the, we're we're conditioned to respond to authority figures, and unfortunately, the medical priesthood is one of the the most ominous and right. and um, uh, what's what would be the word? It's monolithic almost yeah. in our consciousness. Yeah. Although you can buy the white coat, Robert. Yeah, yeah. You can even get a stethoscope. That's the priestcraft. You're right. That's those are priests' garments, and uh, it's it's no joke that they wear the stethoscope and and the white coat as as a shaman would would to establish a belief system and an authority and. And uh, it's all fascinating stuff. I'm going to do the exercise, so I'm going to back out of here. But thanks for uh, raising your hand and letting me use this cool new uh, system we got here, okay? Hey, not a problem. Take care. Great program. Great show. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate you being here. Now, hopefully I won't hang up the whole program like I did last time. (laughs) I'm just going to hit hold. Oops. And uh, put Robert back on hold. And I think we're cool. So let's do our guided imagery exercise, and um, then we'll call it a day. So um, whether you're listening live or by replay, get comfortable, prop up the pillows, and sit straight. Be balanced. Get a sense of yourself as balanced. Put your shoulders back and open your chest as you take a nice, full, slow, deep breath. Pause for just a moment and then exhale slowly. And do that two or three times all together. Nice, slow, deep breath and begin to feel yourself relaxing. Feel the letting go. Muscles unwinding, muscles relaxing, feeling really safe. From the top of your head to the soles of your feet. And then allow your breathing to find its natural rhythm or cadence. And put your attention gently and effortlessly on the bottom of your nose as you watch the natural ebb and flow of the breathing. Simply watch the breath and become interested just as you would be interested in the way the, the peaks and the valleys of waves at the ocean shoreline roll in and break on the beach 
are drained back into the ocean. We could sit there and watch those waves and in the same way sit here and watch these waves. Noticing that you don't have to intervene consciously. That this is a response to an inner unconscious stimulus, breathing, and that you can relax and release your willpower, release your volition, and allow your body to breathe itself. Become interested in that. Become interested in just imagining for a moment how many other reactions or responses in your body are being handled automatically or autonomically. That your blood pressure and internal body temperature, your very heartbeat, Millions of corpuscles, red blood cells, white blood cells, other cells as corpuscles moving throughout your body, repairing cells, replacing cells, growing, eliminating that which is used up on a cellular level. And you can just let it go. You don't need to pay attention at all on a cellular level, nor need you pay attention to those natural physical responses on an organic level. The heart knows how to be a heart. Your lungs know how to breathe all by themselves. The body temperature, blood pressure, and a thousand and one other responses all working just fine. As Diane said from Albuquerque this morning, you don't know the absolute truth of this. You don't need to. Remain humble before the fact that you've been designed to have the freedom of mind, the freedom of consciousness, to shift your awareness or to zoom out and expand your awareness. Your sense that you exist, for example, begins perhaps with physical sense and sensation. But right now you're sitting with eyes closed and could clearly imagine in your mind's eye pretty much anything you bring to mind. Imagine a tree. There it is. Imagine walking over and touching the tree. And you say, yeah, Michael, but I'm just making that up. Well, 
if your eyes were open and you saw a tree, there'd be a a participation. You'd still be making it up somewhat. And so you could imagine climbing the tree or physically climb a tree. And in both cases, you're participating in the perception. But with eyes closed, the imagination is so unlimited, it can go beyond observing imaginary behavior. It can look at your thoughts. You can watch yourself think. And the more deeply relaxed, the easier it is to watch yourself think. And so every once in a while, you might want to take another slow, deep breath. And as you exhale, relax even more. Imagine yourself becoming even more relaxed and going deeper. Making it easier to watch those thoughts. And even once in a while, you'll see a gap between your thoughts. And so, too, as you breathe and relax, not only does the mind quiet, but the emotional nature becomes more peaceful, more calm and tranquil. And you can observe your emotional feelings without being driven by your emotions. Just as you can better choose what to think, how to think, why to think that way, you can experience your feelings without being driven by the feeling. You could explore anger even in a peaceful, calm, and relaxed state from a mental and emotional point of view without ever being angry. You could imagine yourself being angry. You could remember how anger feels and learn from it, provided that you remain detached and mindful for awareness of self. is the identity we've been looking for. Not a separative self. Not really even a harmonious self but a unitive self. And still it takes practice. A passion or devotion to be a devotee is not to follow one particular religion or or one particular guru, writer, author, teacher. To be a a devotee, to be devoted to love and light, to be reborn, 
is to perpetually develop your awareness. Through relaxation, feeling very safe, you drop all fear. And in this place of peace and fearlessness, you can know the love that is the light that is a higher order of peace and love than you've ever known in the world. And a few minutes from now, when I suggest that you open your eyes and be wide awake and back in the room, you'll be able to bring with you a little piece of that awareness, that consciousness, that light that you gave birth to, that you are right now receiving the life force, you see, the the chi, the ki, the kundalini, the prana, the odic force, the alan vital, the Holy Spirit, the mojo, <laughs> is the light that illumines and animates the sack of protoplasm and chemicals that most people see as pretty much the limit of self, a physical body that thinks and feels. That's as far as most of us go. The birth of light is more than winter solstice and the days getting longer. It's more than the festival of lights that the old rabbis aligned with the darkest night and the longest night of the year. The birth of light is the Christos. It transcends Christianity. It is the Buddha nature in Eastern philosophy. It is an experience of having your unique point of view elevated above form, yet still in form, but also above and free of form. This is the elevated perspective of having ascended somewhat to a higher level and expanded degree of conscious awareness, of an awareness that you are more than thought, feeling, and behavior. You are the consciousness behind. You are the air that is in fire, water, and earth. There is one life at work, and ultimately, we are that one life. From the soul's point of view, we share that ground, that common ground of the one life, yet have individuated points of view and manifested into a physical body become very separated and lonely, alienated and even lost. Turn it around. Climb that Jacob's ladder, that stairway to heaven, 
allow yourself to be drawn up magically by the magnetic nature of consciousness, awareness is love and light. It will draw you up. It will lift you gently to a higher, more inclusive perspective, a bigger picture, if you will. Commit yourself as we end one year and move into a new year, ending one decade, actually, and move into the second decade of a whole new century. Dedicate yourself, I'd suggest, to three things. To study, number one. Come to this class whenever you can. Listen to the replays and the podcasts. Listen to other people's podcasts and audiobooks and read and study. Go to seminars and workshops looking not for the one right way, but to keep what makes sense to you and leave the rest moving forward as a collector of wisdom. Secondly, meditate, practice, visualizing, breathing, feeling so safe that you are the fearless spiritual warrior. And third, practice mindfulness between your meditations. When your eyes are open and you're moving out in the physical world, carry with you that sense of mindful detachment. It's not dissociation or apathy. My goodness, detachment and mindfulness involves you even more by providing the bigger picture you get when you zoom out. Stop holding on and let go. For all holding on is fear. Let go. All letting go is love. Let go and allow yourself to gently float upwards to that higher perspective. Through study, through meditation and mindfulness, dedicate yourself in this new year, this new decade, this new millennium to being one who is interested in your ultimate sense of self. Self not only as a separated being, not only as a harmonious soul loving all of humanity, but to find the sacred source within you and follow that path of love and light. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to take a nice, slow, deep breath and come back into the room, reorient yourself to the room around you. So remember what it is that you're going to be seeing in a moment. And think of carrying with you effortlessly, as if very delicate and fragile, the awareness of the witness or the watcher the one who observes light and life without having to judge, without having to control, but with
with a dedication and a passion to see things as they truly are. Not as right or wrong, good or bad, winners or losers, something you like or dislike, but simply as it actually is. And practice that level of curiosity, that interest, and that intrigue. Celebrate every year the birth of light through winter solstice, through Hanukkah, through Christmas, and through a mystical understanding that beyond the air, earth, and fire, let me say that correctly, beyond the fire, water, and the earth, you are also air. Beyond the mind, the fire, the emotional nature, the water, and the physical nature of the earth, you are air, everywhere equally present, imbued in the mental, emotional, and physical nature, ultimately, I am that I am, in form but above and free of form. You are love. You are light. Take another nice, slow, deep breath. Fill your lungs. And as you exhale, release. Open your eyes wide awake, alert, refreshed, uh, rested and refreshed. Refreshed, you know, make up a new word. Rested and refreshed and alert, feeling wide awake. And uh, Happy New Year, Happy Solstice, Happy Festival of Lights, Happy Christmas, the birth of lights. And again, throughout paganism and shamanism, you'll find these mystical references of all kinds to yourself as an identity of awareness that transcends the lower three. Right? Be that I am and make better choices in your behavior, in your thoughts, and in the emotions that you counsel. And thanks for being with us. Be sure to check out our uh, Focus Passion program, because that's what makes all of this possible. It's only 99 cents a week, yet it's studio quality. There's two of us. My partner of 35 years, Steve Snyder, and I do the studio quality broadcast podcast on Finding Yourself in Paradise, which is that higher self, personal and spiritual growth. And that supports all of this work, this free webinar that we do every Sunday, all of the articles, all of the websites, the broadband charges. Um, it hasn't yet, but hopefully you feel inclined to maybe chip in 99 cents a week. That will help out a lot. Just go to focusedpassion.com. The account there is free. You get six programs to start, all free, a built-in player, Focused Passion. There's an ED in there, the w.focusedpassion.com. Get those six free programs, listen to them with the built-in player, or you can drop them into your iTunes software or read it with an RSS. You know, the, the browser itself will read these programs. Just mess around with it. It's really cool. And... If you want to subscribe, just click the button to sign up, and we'll bill you on your ATM card, your debit card, credit card, whatever you want to use. 
three ninety six a month. All the tools you need to manage that credit card, to turn it off, turn it back on, are right there in front of you. And that supports everything, everything that we do. Less than $4 a month. It's a great way to start the new year. It helps us out a lot. allows us to continue to do these programs every Sunday live at the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. So with that, let me thank you for being here today. I wish you again a happy holiday and uh, uh, all that it involves, you know, the solstice and the Hanukkah and the Christmas. And uh, I wanted to try and throw in Ramadan or some kind of uh, Islamic uh, holiday, but they don't really celebrate the light in the same way. Ramadan is the month of September for a Muslim, and in many ways that is a month of light for Islam because that's when the Prophet Muhammad began to get the first books of the Quran was in September, Ramadan, and that's honored by a very holy festival. Um, so we want to get that in there, too. And then all of Eastern philosophy fits because it's just so mystical. So hope you'll make it a point to be with us next week and invite your friends to, as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. And aloha from Maui, Hawaii. <laughs> 